And greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Greet one another in the chat. And as you can see, I am at a different location. I'm on a ski vacation here in beautiful Bend, Oregon. And no, this is not going to be a cooking show, okay? Just in case you're wondering with the backdrop. But we are here live and blessed to be here, blessed to see you in the chat. So please bear with us as we delve into the second part of Isaiah, Yeshayahu, chapter one. And I know it's been a bit of a slow start, but I assure you, we're going to jump ahead a lot quicker in the future. But I really wanted to give you, firstly, the introduction, kind of paint that big picture of um, Yeshayahu, Isaiah. And now we're in the first chapter last week. We're going to jump in about the seventh verse of the first chapter this week and give some insights and get some of your thoughts as well on this teaching. I pray that you are all blessed and that you are growing in your faith. And for me, as I study through this book of Isaiah, the fifth Hebrew gospel, like I've said in the last week's teaching, I look at Isaiah, Yeshayahu, as that formidable bookend prophesying all of the good things to come. And remember, he said the end is revealed from the beginning. And I believe that with the right mindset and understanding of who Rav Shaliak Shaul, Rabbi Apostle Paul is, you'll see that he is the other bookend that frames the true gospel, Besorah, that Isaiah is prophesying. And that true gospel is Yahusha, the Malkitzedic high priest. And for him and us to understand the Malkitzedic priesthood, we truly have to realize there is only one true gospel. And that is the Malkitzedic priesthood in Yahusha. And it is understanding the dichotomy between the book of the law and the book of the covenant. Any other Malkitzedic gospel that doesn't show you the dichotomy between the book of the law and the book of the covenant is another gospel. And we're going to see that as we grow in this study. So let's delve in to chapter one. And remember, chapter one is set in about 701 before the common era. It's the 14th year of the reign of King Hezekiah. Now, Assyria had already invaded the southern kingdom of Judah at this time. And they'd been thwarted because of the righteousness of a king and his people. Now, the word vision that's used here, it's in a wide sense a collection of prophetic oracles. And you can cross-reference that with Nahum chapter 1, verse 1, Obadiah chapter 1, verse 1, because the prophet here is called a seer, or in the Hebrew, Jose. Jose. He is one who is able to prophetically have that vision to see the things of Yahuwah that are about to come. Are we that people? Are you that individual, prophet, priest, under the Malkitzedic priesthood, who has the gift of Jose to be able to see where we're at prophetically and what is coming, because that is a visionary. And we're called to be visionaries today. Now, earlier in 722 before the common era, Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom. And they'd taken the 10 northern tribes, commonly called Ephraim, captive into the nations. And that's where we get the term, the 10 lost tribes. In verse 7, it is written, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, foreigners devour it in your presence. And it's desolate. Foreigners overthrow it. 
and the daughter of Zion, Zion is left as a shelter in a vineyard and as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. And I read that last week and I kind of camped on that verse. But in verse 7, you see the words fire. And verse 20, you see sword. Now, these are synonymous parallels where these terms have dual meanings. A person who personifies Yahweh's fire and sword who serve as his instruments for punishing the wicked. So that's what we're seeing in view here. And in verse 8, we see daughter of Zion or daughter of Zion, however you want to pronounce it. This is Israel as a woman and Yahuwah as her husband. Yet Israel, as a whole, at this point, she's apostatized. Yet there are among them those who survive the exile, and they're called the daughter of Zion. That's you. That's me. We are going to survive this exile. We are the remnant that has been called out and has the vision to see this Malchizedek priesthood of which Yeshiyahu prophesied, of which Rav Shaliak Shaul solidified, of which Yahusha brought into fruition. But there are so many other gospels going on about around in the nations. So we clearly have to define what the true gospel is, and that is the dichotomy of the book of the law and the book of the covenant. And I feel so blessed to be able to teach this message and for people like you to be able to see it and have the vision to understand it. Now, in the narrative, we see one and a tenth or a tenth of an omer. And we can see that oftentimes prophetically spoken or laid out for us, even in the New Testament, when, of course, 10 lepers come to see Yahushua and they're all healed, yet one returns. So what's this showing? This is showing that there is always a remnant, those who resonate at a higher spiritual energy than the whole Israel category. So if you think about the 10 exiled tribes or the lost 10 tribes, well, many of those got caught up into the nations and they're going to be celebrating Christmas tomorrow. And, you know, many of them, you know, think they're Christians or um, have kind of apostatized into the paganness of the nations, that they're really not clearly identified as Israel. But out of that, there is always going to be one-tenth of an omer. There's always going to be that one that is healed, that returns to resonate at a higher spiritual energy and give thanks to the one who redeemed him. That is the category. And they are the one-tenth of an omer, the one that returns to give thanks for his salvation because of their awakened state to the covenant. Because it's all covenant. Dare I say, the book of the covenant, the Malchizedek priesthood. Now look, the daughter of Zion is left. Now the idea of being left isn't like those that are left behind by that infamous you know, movie or book series, Left Behind. No, the ones that are left signifies the survival of the remnant. You see, those that have become paganized and corrupted, they flip the script. They've got it upside down and backwards. To be left behind means the remnant because it's the wheat that is left behind and gathered into the barn. It's the tares that are taken first and gathered and thrown into the fire. So the daughter of Zion, yes, she's left, but the idea of being left, it's upside down to what the pagan nations teach and those that are lost in the pagan religions of the world teach, because to be left signifies the survival of you and me, the remnant. Like under the parable, 
of the wheat and the tares at the sickle harvest. Those left are those that return from the exile. And that's true healing. Exile is sickness, but return from exile is healing. We come back to the Torah. We come back to Israel. We come back to the covenant. Life under the right ruling of Yahushua HaMashiach. And it is glorious. You are called the holy offspring. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. What an honor. And what an honor indeed. A shelter in a vineyard. What is that? Yahuwah's vineyard. The promised land. This was a very well-known prophecy, which, of course, Yahusha and Shaul expanded upon in Matthew 20, Matthew 21, and 1 Corinthians 9. You can read that in your own time, but, of course, that is expanded along and upon in the Brit Hadashah. The shelter, of course, refers to Yahuwah's cloud and to his glory, which is all about that Book of the Covenant ratification ceremony in Exodus Shemot chapter 19, to which at this point in Isaiah, Israel has become so far removed from that protective canopy. How many of your loved ones have become so far removed from that protective canopy? How many of us grew up so far removed from that protective canopy? As for me and my house, We see the bounty and the blessings in our life because we came under the protective canopy of the Father in our marriages, with our children, in our homeschooling, in our businesses. And he is our defense. He is our shield. He is our banner when we stay in the Malkitzedic covenant of blessings because there are many ravaging forces of evil and destruction that are trying to encroach upon our borders right now. And we need to be that people that are dwelling right under that shelter. A cucumber in a field, the idea, like I said last week, of a hut or cottage, which suggests the presence of a watchman who guards the field against the thieves and the wild enemies, or chaos that tries to creep into your life. Every day, chaos is out there, yet Yahuwah is our refuge. Now, remember there was a parable. I'll read it to you. There was a certain householder who planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it. And he built a tower and he let it out to the husbandman and went into a far country. Of course, that's Matthew 21, verse 33. And the husbandman took his servants, and he built, beat one, and he killed another. Well, we are reading of the other, our very prophet himself, the prophet of this parable spoken in Matthew chapter 21. Now, coming back to our text, Isaiah, verse 9, it says, Except Yahweh Sivot had left us a very small remnant, we would have become just like Sodom, and we would have been just like Gomorrah. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the Torah of our Elohim, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose, then? is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says Yahuwah. I am full of the burnt offerings and rams and of the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to trample my courts? And tomorrow I would ask that question to a lot of people. Where is this required? Who who said we were supposed to do this to honor the sun? I I don't see it. In fact, I see the very opposite. In Jeremiah chapter 10, I see the very opposite. Why are we doing, why are we trampling his corpse with so many things that the secular world lifts up in a commercial realm? I don't get it. 
and I'm thankful I don't anymore because there was a time when I was one with them. Now, Matthew 24, verse 31, obviously, is taking, um, taking the time to give us the insight so we're able to see that that verse is speaking about an age when people's perverse lifestyle, it causes them to grow so defensive and so aggressive that they actually attempt to violate just the natural laws of the creation. Now, Isaiah here is drawing an end-time type that live without sight of Elohim. They're godless. They start to resemble the ancient inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you see it all around you. Because when a society's devotion to Elohim becomes but a shallow version of the Torah, like I said last week, it lacks the power to withstand evil. And that's why we're seeing so many so-called believers falling into sin, their world and lives breaking up because they haven't been equipped through the Torah with the fence posts and the signposts and, of course, the borders and the barriers of his commandments to keep out the evil. So it comes encroaching in because there's a moral degeneracy that is all about us. And people's spiritual condition, it holds little hope for their next generations. We need to think generationally about our children and our grandchildren. It's not what we take with us. It's what we leave behind. That is how we're to think as believers. It's not about accumulating for yourself. It's about leaving behind for another generation. And that's not just material things. That is leaving behind a legacy and a way that they can live and grow. Look at verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. The Rosh Hodeshim, the Shabbats, the calling of Mikra Kedoshim. I cannot put up with them. It is iniquity, even the Kadosh meetings. Your Rosh Hodeshim, your Moadim, my being hates. What strong language. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you may make tefillot, prayer, I will not hear. Your hands are full of dam, blood. Now, blood doesn't just include gross injustices, but injustices in general. Because hands, they're full of blood. Speaks of Malachian worship. Like I said last week, again, akin to the modern abortion and what you're seeing with all of this genetic viruses and injections that are causing mutilations. Verse 16, wash your hands, make yourself clean, wash yourself, make yourself clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. We have to learn to do good. Seek mishpat, judgment, right ruling, Justice must be administered justly. Relieve the oppressed, those that are burdened. Defend the fatherless. Plead, make intercession. Go and help the widow. Come now, let's have a conversation. Let us reason together, says Yahuwah. Are we able to reason? Are we able to have a conversation without you getting so defensive? Are we able to have dialogue? Are we able to resolve conflicts and settle disputes. How may I settle this with you today? Because I do not want escalation. I want de-escalation. I don't want to raise my voice. I want to hear the still small voice. And when my voice is raised, then I don't have the ears to hear. And this is something that I want in my life. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be as wool, repenting of our crimes, 
purifying our lives. And that happens through fire sometimes. Sometimes it's painful. Refining our thoughts, refining our behaviors. It's a refining process. It takes work, but it's worth it. Though you may be burdened with guilt, how far is too far with Yahuwah? I've gone too far, you say. I just can't come back. Well, I used to think that about my life. I have done too much. I have seen too much. My eyes have behold. My hands have left. This is what he's talking about. But nothing is too far for Yahuwah if you come through his son. The test, Yahuwah says, is whether we will repent from doing the evil that we used to do. Will we change our behavior? Will we cleanse the stain of wickedness in our life? We must cease to do evil and then learn to do good. And we cannot hold on to the hurts. We have to forgive our enemies. We have to. Otherwise, it will be to our detriment. Verse 19. If you are willing and you are obedient, then what? You shall eat the good of the land, the tov of the land in the Hebrew. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of Yahuwah has spoken it. How is it that the faithful city became a harlot? It was full of mishpat, zadakah, lodged within it, but now murderous. It was full of righteous rulings, but now murderers. What happened? Your silver, verse 22, has become dross. Your wine mixed with mayim, water. Your rulers are rebellious and your companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow concern them. Therefore, says the master Yahweh Sivot. I love that, that phrase. The master Yahweh Sivot. That's what my translation says. And if you're wondering what translation I'm using, it's my favorite. It's the Restoration True Name Edition. It's the third edition. I've had it for years. I think it's a fabulous, fabulous translation. The Mighty One of Israel. Ah, I will be eased from my adversaries and avenged of mine enemies. So some of your translations may have this, um, in the Hebrew it appears as ha-adon in the Masoretic text, or the master or the sovereign. But the title used here, ha-adon, giving you the Masoretic text, it's very specific, listen, it's very specific to Isaiah. And it's used by him only in introducing a threat. I'll repeat that. Ha-adon the master or sovereign. It is a very specific phrase that is used by Isaiah, uh, Isaiah excuse me, only when he's introducing a threat. It's a threat. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 16. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 33. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 4. I mean, I can go on and I can go on. And here's my Merry Christmas note to you. In relation to this title, then, it shows we are actually, listen, we are actually, it's going to offend some of you, we are actually as believers being threatened by Yahuwah to forsake the pagan holidays and show up at the feasts. Because this very phrase that is so specific in threat language in Isaiah, it was used in Exodus Chapter 23, verse 17. Exodus chapter 34, verse 23. It is the same threat language. Go figure. Because this is the season to repent and return back to the feasts and festivals of Yahuwah and forsake the pagan nations and the customs of those up under the fertile trees and valleys. A negative response to Yahuwah's warnings leads to his people's calamity. It's a warning, a refusal to repent. 
results in Yahuwah empowering your enemies against you. And you don't want that. Verse 25, and I will turn my hand against you and purge away the dross of your rebellious men and take away all your sin. And I will restore your judges, Shoftim, as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterwards, you shall be called the city of Zadakah, righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with Mishpat, judgment, and her restored ones with Zadakah, righteousness, and the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners, or they shall be together. And also they that forsake Yahuwah, or they will be consumed, for they shall be ashamed about the oak tree which they have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be as an oak, whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no waters. And this was for all of those nature worshippers out there that were going up under the high trees, and they were cutting down the tree, bringing it in from the forest, decorating it as Jeremiah prohibited and warned them not to do. You see, the lives of the prophets are an ancient apocryphal account of the lives of the last generation. There's going to be a prophetic remnant that is raised up to call Yahweh's people, the nine-tenths that have not awakened, to come into the vineyard and to come into the hut and to come and be covered by that canopy. But what happened to Isaiah? Where did it go wrong? Such a righteous man and to end up in such calamity. Well, there is a writing called The Ascension of Isaiah, and I want to read it to you right now. Now, The Ascension of Isaiah is a pseudopigraphical, that's a big word for me, Judeo-Christian text from about 70 of the Common Era to 175 of the Common Era it was written. Now, this is what it says. Isaiah was of Jerusalem. He met his death at the hands of Manasseh, sawed in two, and was buried below the oak of Rogel, hard by the passage across the waters, which Hezekiah spoiled by blocking their course. For the prophet's sake, God wrought the miracle of Siloam. That's talking about the pool of Siloam. For before his death, when he was beginning to faint, he prayed for water, and it was sent to him from its spring. This is the spring of Hezekiah. Hence it was called Siloam, which meant he sent. Also in the time of Hezekiah, before the king made the pools and the reservoirs, at the prayer of Isaiah, a little water came forth here. Lest the city at the time besieged by the Gentiles, should be destroyed by lack of water. For the enemy were seeking a drinking place. And as they invested the city, they encamped near Siloam. If then the Hebrews came to the pool, water flowed forth. And if the Gentiles came, then there was none. Hence, even to the present day, the water issues suddenly to keep the miracle in mind, because this was wrought through the prayer of Isaiah. The people in remembrance buried his body near the spot with care and high honor, in order that through his ravers, even after his death, they might continue to have the benefit of the water. Indeed, a revelation had been given to them concerning him, his tomb, however, is near the tomb of the kings behind the tomb of the priest on the side toward the south. So that you can even see down in present-day Israel. And in fact, in the Brit Hadashah, when Yahushua was doing the water libation ceremony, when he cried out and he said, let the waters flow, 
he was speaking about this very ceremony. Because what would happen, the high priest, the Kohen Haggadah, would be upon high. He would be up on the Temple Mount. And he would be the, called the man who was sent. That's a specific term when you look at the, the parables or the prophecy better about Joseph. Joseph was sent to go and check on the welfare of his brethren. Likewise, Yahusha ben Joseph was sent by his father to go and check on the welfare of his brethren. And what was his report? It was a bad report. They'd become a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees, so much so that they wanted to kill him. Anyway, the man who was sent went down to the lowest point in Jerusalem, which was right where Isaiah was buried. The one who prophesied him. Remember the bookend? And the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, and he would scoop up the waters for the water libation ceremony from the pool of Siloam. And he would be led in a procession, the man who was sent to check on the welfare of his brethren. He would be sent by, down low by the father to scoop up the waters of salvation. And then a procession would proceed forth up to the temple mount led by a flute player called the pierced one. Are you getting what I'm laying down here? This is all in the rabbinical commentaries from the first century. The father sends the sent one down low to check on the welfare of his brothers, who he then gives a bad report. So he brings the waters of salvation from down low, up upon high, led by the pierced one, and then he deposits the waters of salvation into a funnel and the water is mingled with the wine and it overflows. And at that point, he says, all who are thirsty, come and drink of me and you will never thirst again. And that verse used to trouble me every Sunday as I sat in the church pews thirsting for more righteousness and so tired of just the sermons that didn't touch my heart because they weren't expounding upon the word and showing me how to live a righteous life in a sick and perverse generation. So what's the lesson in this first chapter? Well, the lesson to me when I read this is the fate of the prophet. We're in the first chapter, but I know what happens to him. How did his fate even come about, I ponder to myself. How could somebody so righteous as Isaiah, a prophet who was chosen to bring forth this message, how could he end up sawn asunder by Manasseh? What went wrong? What did he, he was, these prophets, they were just like you and I. They were regular people that got saved and dedicated their lives to Yahuwah, and then they were filled with the gift, the Ruach HaKodesh, and then they operated all of the manifestations. Well, we live in a world where we don't even have the ability to reason together, it seems. Many of you may even be experiencing this now, especially with those family members that are still celebrating the pagan holidays. You may want to try and share, but you get blocked at every turn and just called a religious zealot or called a Judaizer or called a Jew or whatever, something to just shut you down. And you're just trying to have a conversation about the reality of Christmas. You're just trying to have a conversation about the reality of what Yahuwah has done in your life and how you've come to the Torah. But you can't even reason together, oftentimes in families. And I'm sure so many of your hearts break at this time. But you need to be aware. Because this was Isaiah's downfall of offending the wrong person. We need to know who we're dealing with in this modern world. And that is the lesson that I want to end with today. Isaiah ended up being sawn asunder 
because he failed to understand who he was dealing with. You see, some people will spend the rest of their lives seeking revenge, as was the case of Manasseh. And Isaiah the prophet didn't realize that he was dealing with that personality type. There's basically five personality types. And if you're oblivious to what those five personality types are, then it could serve very, very badly upon you if you inadvertently cross with the wrong personality type. That's called chaos. And there are a bunch of wonderful people out there in this world. But there are a bunch of wicked as hell people too. And sometimes you may bump inadvertently into one of them. And if you do not know who you're dealing with, then it could not serve you very well. So let's look in closing at the five different personality types that we need to be aware of with who we are dealing in this modern age, just as Isaiah should have realized who he was dealing with. And as I go through the five, I want you to tell me who you think, what personality type Manasseh was, the one that sawed Isaiah asunder. Number one, the devil with the long memory. If you offend or if you hurt this personality type, they won't show it to you on the surface. They will calculate, they will stew, and they will lie in wait for exacting revenge. They are cold-blooded. They are full of shrewdness and deception. And if you come across that type, you have to crush them totally. That's the only way. Or, like the Apostle Paul said, you have to flee. There is no in-between. You either crush them totally or you flee. And some of you are like, well, that doesn't sound very Christian, crushing them totally. Well, I'm not Christian. I am an Israelite born and saved by the blood of Yahushua, and I don't adhere to pagan traditions anymore. And in the Torah, did Moshe crush his enemies totally? Did he tell Israel to go into a town and crush his enemies totally? Because that's the Elohim who I serve, the one that commanded Moshe to crush your enemies totally or to flee, as the Apostle Paul says. So I'm not here to cater to religious niceties and traditions, because that's not going to serve you well if you cross one of these personality types. Number two personality type is the suspicious minds. If you ever come in contact with that personality type, they just see the worst in everybody. That's the wicked imagination. What you have to do is you have to turn their imagination to another target because they always need a target. If it's not you, you've got to turn their imagination to another target. Number three personality type is Mr. Unassuming. He tends to tie you up in pettiness and trivialities wasting your time and energy and resources. You know what you need to do with Mr. Unassuming? Avoid them at all costs. It's a time waster, an absolute time waster. You've got more important things to do for the kingdom than hanging out with Mr. Unassuming. Number four, the insecure. His ego is just so fragile. And if you hurt somebody like that, then their hurts will just simmer because once they're offended, he will nibble you to death slowly, pick you apart like a vulture on roadkill. You don't want to be around the insecure because the fragility of their emotions will constantly cause you to be in a state of chaos. And number five, the fifth personality type, 
the arrogant and proud, the most dangerous of them all. Vengeance and violence are their MO. There is no reason and there is no way to de-escalate them. You simply have to believe. Ultimately, brethren, our judgment and salvation should have brought about a purification of our lives by revealing the folly of our and others' ways. Because at some point in our lives, we've all fallen into some of these characteristics. And it's not our good selves. It's that dark side of your personality. And by identifying it firstly in you, those traits, and then identifying it in others, you can crush it totally if it's within you, crush it totally, a relationship of those that may be exhibiting those personality types. Flee, avoidance, because we have a limited amount of energy and a limited amount of time. And it's not what we gain, but what we leave behind. So our energy and the time that we are given is of utmost importance to use for the kingdom of Yahuwah. Which personality type do you think Manasseh was that sawed Isaiah asunder? How could have Isaiah not compromised his mission yet of being aware of these five points of human nature? Because these are the five points of human nature that you will come into in a world of chaos. But we need to be able to be that remnant that isn't sawn asunder, but survives. But not only survives, we thrive to bring this gospel message of the Malkitzedic priesthood and Yeshua to the last generation. Next week, we're going to dive into chapter two. I'm excited that you shared your time with me here in Bend, Oregon. And if any of you have ever been to Bend, you know it's a wonderful place. If you haven't, the skiing's great, the mountain biking's great, the rock climbing's great, and uh, it's a pretty cool place. So if you're ever up in this part of the world, definitely recommend that you give Bend, Oregon a visit. And now I will bounce over here. If you're still with me, you can redline me at TorahToTheTribes.com Tell me, who do you think Manasseh was in those personality types? Or if you have a question, then please put it up in the chat and you can redline me at TorahToTheTribes.com. Wow, there's a lot of you in the chat today, isn't there? It's good, it's good. Baruch Hashem Yahweh, Baruch Hashem Yahweh. Jeremiah Johnson, peace unto you, Matthew, question. What is your take on the Seventh-day Adventist and Orthodox Church? I'm not sure what you mean about the Orthodox. You're talking about the Eastern Orthodox? I mean, again, with the Seventh-day Adventist, there's a little piece of truth there mixed in with so much tradition, right? So, again, I think many of us are seeing this mixture and we want to come out of it. And that truly is the wonderful Malkitzedic priesthood and understanding that, yes, we get to keep Torah, but we get to keep Book of the Covenant Torah. We're not going to go sacrificing animals. Yahushua is our sin sacrifice. We're not going to go joining a Levitical priesthood. We're not looking forward to a Levitical priesthood. That was done away with. We are now in the Malkitzedic priesthood in Yahushua. So it's the rightly dividing the word of truth. And when we see that, it's fullness and wonder and beauty. And that's what I'm here to try and help guide you to that wonderful freedom in Torah and Messiah. It's not a burden. It's not something that our fathers try to put on us that we couldn't do, Acts 15. It's supposed to be liberty, goodness, life, and blessings. And we should see it in our families and generations. Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Let's see. Emissary of Elohim, Shabbat Shalom.
read the beginning of the chat. Okay, let me read the beginning of the chat. Let me put my glasses on so I don't have to squint. How about that? Ah, it's better. Yochanan Bell, is that what you want me to read? What do you want me to read in the beginning of the chat, Emissary of Elohim? Oh, Babylon, mysticism, Luciferianism, Kabbalah is found littered all over architecture. Yes, it is. Used to be a semi-professional photographer and photographed all sorts of it over the oceans. Well, it is. It's everywhere. And, and that's what, uh, you know, we're inundated with it. And that, that can affect your mind and affect your thinking, affect your thinking. Let's see. He was the latter personality you spoke of. Shabbat Shalom, Regina Eden. You are correct. He was the latter personality of what I spoke of. He was the arrogant. Manasseh was the arrogant and proud man, the most dangerous of them all. So that is where Isaiah fell, is he didn't recognize that there are traits and character traits and you cannot change people's character only Yahushua can it's a born-again experience I can train people all day long I can train a monkey to do things you know I haven't but I'm sure I could but you cannot train character that is something that is innate and if you have come across somebody and I've made this mistake you hire somebody with a bad character, then guess what? You will have to experience the consequences of making that decision. And it was a poor decision. But thankfully, Yahuwah, if you return to him, he will redeem the situation. But you're not guaranteed how much energy you may expand and how much time may go by until the matter is settled and you are released from the snares of those uh, with those character traits with isaiah he was released and we'll see him but it came at a great cost his life and we'll see him in the resurrection baruch hashem yahuwah tennessee rambler could these five personality personality types be demonic influence or possession well definitely especially at the end of the spectrum of them definitely at the end of the spectrum because in all honesty, have you not manifest all five of those in your weakest points in your life at some point or another, in a thought, in a word, in an action or a deed? But that doesn't mean that's your personality type, but it's human nature. But yes, at the spectrum of these, then it is absolutely demonic for sure and for certain. CK Dash, Shabbat Shalom. My veil has been lifted. Thank you for your wisdom and knowledge. I have learned so much from you and others, except where to start and how to worship Yah. Well, the best way to set to start is Acts chapter 15. Remember, there's those three commandments. I'll turn there right now because there's nothing more important than the question that you just asked. Where do we start? What do we do when we're coming into this wonderful, wonderful Torah truth? Well, thankfully, he tells us what to do. In Acts chapter 15, he tells us, he says, these are the three essential commandments, okay? Number one, abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. What does that mean? Worship Yahuwah the way that Yahuwah wants to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped at his feasts and festivals through his son and through the singing of the Psalms. So if you come in with a Christmas tree, then Yahuwah is going to say, well, uh, I view that as meat sacrificed to idols. If you lift up an Easter ham, he's going to say, oh, I know that in your heart you're doing it unto me but I view that as meat sacrificed to idols. That's the first commandment, is abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. The second one is abstain from fornication, meaning, hey, live a pure life. Don't be a whoring around. Guard what you're looking at, guard what you're listening to, and be faithful, honest, and true. 
And number three, abstain from blood and things strangled. Meaning, we're going to have an own egg together. We're going to break some bread together. You can't bring a porker in. And you can't go and um, bring in some shrimpies just because they're doused in garlic butter and it tastes lovely. No, rubber tires doused in garlic butter taste lovely. I mean, anything does, but that doesn't make it right. And if we're going to break bread together, then let's just stick to the dietary commandments in Leviticus 11. Those are the three essential commandments. Then, if you start following the Torah portions and listen to Moses, the teachings of Moses, or somebody that teaches Moses, then guess what? You'll get the rest of the instruction over the annual Torah cycle. So number one, abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. Worship Yahuwah the way he intends to be worshipped, through his feasts and festivals, through the singing of the Psalms, and through, of course, the blood of his son. Number two, what did I say number two was? <laughs> no fornicating, self-explanatory. Number three, abstain from blood and things strangled. Dietary requirements so we can all break bread together and we don't have to wonder if somebody put some pork in with the green beans, which would always happen after church on Sunday. I mean, they sneak that stuff in everywhere, don't they? If you're having sour cream, watch out for the gelatin. If you're going out for Mexican food, you got to watch out what they put in the um, tortillas because that's full of... Uh, Oftentimes, they bake it with large, you know. So you have to ask questions for conscience sake. So there you go. Great questions. And look at me just nattering, nattering on. So let me refresh this chat and see if we've got some new chat in. Nope, I don't want to do that, do I? Okay, live chat. Bear with me, everybody. Yeah, I love Mexican food. I can't wait for Passover either. Yes. I do, but we always ask questions. And my wife either knows the Mexican restaurants that have the sour cream without the gelatin, or we bring our own. We've done that for years because um, we like to be safe, you know? We like to be safe. Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Well, next week, brethren, next week we'll bang into chapter two of Isaiah. And uh, hopefully I will be up on the slopes tomorrow shredding and carving like a turkey. And that's the only turkey thing I'll be doing tomorrow is shredding and carving down the slopes like a turkey. You turkeys, keep it righteous and stay away from all those pagan turkeys, all right? Even though I'm sitting in the kitchen, this is a kosher kitchen when I'm here. So Shabbat Shalom to you all. Blessings, greet one another as you leave the chat. Bless one another. And remember, we are the remnant that is seeking the wonderful, wonderful, righteous ways which Isaiah is teaching us in this book. Shabbat Shalom. See you next Shabbat. <laughs>